Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, doctors, healers, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Colette Lord, PhD. Colette is a licensed therapist and psychologist with over 15 years of experience working with adults with mental health struggles such as PTSD, gender dysphoria, bipolar, dissociative identity disorder, schizophrenia, and addictions. Colette is committed to helping people to get to let go of the pain of their past, to live more fully in the present, and to develop hope for the future. So Colette, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm a little nervous, but happy to be here. (laughs) I gave just a a brief introduction of who you are, but so that the audience can get to know you better, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and who you are and how you got to how and where you are today? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just start off by saying my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I have wanted to be a therapist for pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, I had, I know it goes back to at least junior high because I had an English class where we had to write a fake little article about ourselves uh, from the future. And my article was about how I cured schizophrenia. (laughs) (laughs) So big dreams, big dreams. So it just, it's, it's what I have been put on this earth to do. Um, I love it, but I, you know, I, I had a lot of pain that I felt wasn't seen or heard or understood by people. I always had friends who had a lot of pain that I felt wasn't seen or heard by other people. And it just felt really important to be able to have people see, see, feel and heard. Um, yeah. See, feel seen and heard. And that's kind of, I just knew this is what I had to do. So college, grad school, um, got my PhD, and then I started working in community mental health with people who do not have a lot, a lot, they, not a lot of material possessions or access, but a lot of problems. And I loved it. I loved it. Um, and that's where I really found my calling also to really focus on the underserved and on trauma. Uh, Because I feel like we humans traumatize each other so much that there needs to be more of us who are working to undo, undo that harm. Um, So then that led me to EMDR therapy, which changed my life, changed my profession. It's been such, um, such a powerful tool and really cool to see how people heal with it. Um, And so after 10 years in community mental health, I decided uh, I was tired of being sucked dry by the system. And I felt like my soul was being chipped away at me. Um, not by my clients, not by the, the actual work, but by the system. So I went into private practice and it has been the best, best decision I ever made. I see the people that I want to see. Um, I still serve the people that I want to serve that I'm passionate about serving, but it's, been such a blessing and I love it. So that's 
And in these last couple of years, I did the thing that I've always wanted to do too, which was I got a therapy dog because I'm a big dog lover. So I have a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel named Sadie and she comes with me to the office and some of my clients call her their junior therapy dog. Um, <laughs> and so that is how I spend my, my days. And that's a little bit of um, who I am and kind of how I got to where I am today. That's awesome. Um, so, so something we mentioned before we were, or we started recording was that you were nervous, right? Yes. And um, I had a hard time understanding why you were so nervous because I look at you as, you know, so accomplished and you know so much and you've been doing this for so long and you have a PhD. And so I'm like, what is she nervous about? But as we spoke more about it, you know, it just, it just goes to show that regardless of who you are or what you do at the end of the day, we're all human. And um, I think that is what gives the most relatability. And what I try to put out there is that, yeah. you know, we're all the same. We're all dealing with the same struggles, but these people know a little bit more and they can help you, but they're also human. So you can connect with them and they can provide you with the medicine that your soul needs in order to heal or that, you know, your trauma that you've experienced can be that's not necessarily undone, but you can, you can find ways to cope with it and to still thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And I so appreciate that because when I went to grad school and all of the training, it's always about, you know, you gotta be this professional and they talk, be a blank screen and you're just always in the know. And that is so not, true or accurate and i feel like you don't get that until you're actually out in the world and I'm like no i'm you know i'm not going to tell you my whole life story if you're my client or what's going on in my day-to-day -day, but i'm a real person and i have my foibles and my struggles and like i'm i think yeah that's so important that we undo that kind of veil so i so appreciate you bringing it up and kind of making us real people because we are right and then I even shared with you that, you know, I still don't feel like I'm a podcaster. Like I'm, I'm not a podcaster. I just, I interview people and I put it online. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. I'm yeah. I, the idea that I am a doctor, uh, is still, I can't, you know, I got my doctorate in 2005. And I am still trying to wrap my brain around the fact that I'm a doctor or that I have that much, yeah, knowledge. I mean, just, yeah. Well, you are. And, and I think that you're very good at what you do. And that is why I want to get into this so that we can allow people to see your skill set. And I think that the questions that are prepared, you will answer them so good. So you ready? Yes, let's go. Okay, so I want to quote something that you said. You wrote, as an intersectional feminist, I can acknowledge that I am privileged as a cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied white woman. Can you explain what that means? Yes, absolutely. So intersectional feminism, it's a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a Black feminist and lawyer, talking about the, the reality that we aren't one just one thing, any of us. So she was talking about her reality as a black woman 
is going to be different than my reality as a white woman. And you can't really untangle that. We can't just talk about me as a woman. And especially because I am a white woman, and especially because I really, in almost every class, I carry privilege. Um, it's important for me to know that, um, to acknowledge it and speak it, because so much as white people, it's been <clears throat> just the norm and we don't talk about it and we pretend like we're the, the standard. Um, and especially in therapy, if I don't acknowledge where I come from and who I am, I feel like I'm doing harm. And I, it affects every, you know, I can't help who I am. It's going to affect how I see the world, how I process information. And same thing for my clients. They're going to have a very different perspective, um, even if we share some of the same privilege. So I think naming it so we can bring it into the room and actually talk about it instead of pretending that there isn't difference or we're colorblind or even that we can't get past that and understand each other. Um, so that's why I think, you know, I don't need my clients to be feminists. I don't need them to agree with my perspective, but I think it's important that I name it. Um, and so we can talk about it if it's an issue. Um, so that's why I think that's really important for me in particular to put out there. I know, I know I'm privileged and because I've always had a little, you know, social justice kind of bent it's been important to me to use that privilege. You know, I, I serve people who have Medi-Cal, you know, I serve a lot of people who are underprivileged and I can't pretend that I'm not more privileged. Um, but I do think it's my responsibility to give back because I come from a place of privilege and I can. So. Thank you for that. Thank you so yeah. much for that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, so um, in recent years, you've begun working with trans, non-binary, and genderqueer individuals. Can you share yes. what your experience has been? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love this question because I felt I fell into this completely by accident. Um, my last clinic job was at a federally qualified health center. And um, I wasn't at the clinic that served primarily the queer community, but I was kind of at the the next closest clinic. So I started getting folks um, on my schedule as therapy clients. Um, and my first person was someone who identified as agender. And I was like, I don't know what, I don't know what that means. I don't, I honestly don't remember getting trained to know anything about other than cisgendered folks. And so when that happens to me as a therapist, I dove head first. I was like, I got to start reading books and going to trainings because, you know, people who are not cis. And so we'll just, the general umbrella is often trans. So I'll just talk about the trans folks and communities. They often have to be um, our educators as therapists. Um, less so I would hope now, but most of us didn't get training and did, don't understand. And so it was really important for me to get as much of my own training to take that burden off of my clients. Um, and then of course it absolutely hit, hit my, you know, hot button of social justice because the way things are going in this country is really scary right now for the trans communities, all of this legislation and a lot of hate getting thrown their way. Um, and so 
it it's really kind of lit up a passion for me in advocacy, you know, in my own personal life as well as for my clients. Um, and so it's been just so cool to be able to serve the trans community. I do therapy. Um, I do letters for folks who need referrals um, for hormones or gender affirming care. And so I'm always happy to do that and just kind of educating through my website and on my on my Instagram feed for other therapists and clients to kind of just normalize and get information out there and let people know they're not alone. When I was researching what you do, it seemed like this was a passion of yours. So I yes. wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Because it is, we need more people like me and like you talking about it in non-queer spaces um, because there's just a lot going on right now. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And the more, the more you learn, the more you know that this is not a new phenomenon when so I'm not going to go on a complete and utter tangent like I could, but I am just going to say, just as an FYI, um, when the um, colonials came to America across the U.S. in various Native American communities, they had up to five different genders identified. We have found evidence throughout history of different genders on every continent except Antarctica, of course. Um, so this is not new. Um, we've really kind of been not brainwashed, but we just haven't been educated. And, you know, we get really narrow focused in our country on, on issues and kind of forget that there's any other way of looking at things. But this is not a new phenomenon. Um, people have been around in wildly different ways and forms for a very long time. So I also think that's important to know. Gotcha. Okay. So something else that I saw when I was looking you up is that um, you're a psychologist nerd or psychology nerd at heart. You yes. love learning and growing and you're always looking for ways to get better. So yeah. I wanted to ask, how does this impact your relationship with your clients? Well, you know, on, on one hand, it, I feel like it always makes me a better you know, as a therapist, I'm, I'm my tool for therapy. And so I'm, I'm always making myself a better tool. So I'm hopefully serving my clients better, but I also think it just, it opens the door to being real about like, I do not know everything <laughs> at all. And it, uh, it helps me model being honest about that. And I will tell you that as a therapist, it is, none of us like to be to be in the position of saying like, um, I don't know, like that, it does not feel good in therapy to say that, mm. but it's really, really, really important to be able to do that. You know, say, you know, I don't know a lot about that. Um, I'll be honest. I want to learn. I'm not going to put all the burden on you because that's not fair, but Hey, I, I can't know everything. Um, and so that I think takes, I would hope models good, this relationship to perfection that none of us can have, but so many of us feel like we have to, and it's just not, it's not accurate. So um, I hope I both model a good relationship to, to knowledge and learning and growing as well as trying to just always improve my instrument, my, my tool. 
I'm sure it does. And I mean, just from hearing you talk about it and the way you talk about it in such a calm and reassuring manner, I, I feel that if you were telling me as your client, you know, well, I don't know everything about what you're experiencing or what you've gone through, but I'm going to do my best to learn it. It would make me feel a lot better about my experience and the fact that I could count on you to know in the future, you know, what I guess my experience would be because of your research or because of your desire to know, and then we could grow together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I need, yeah, I want people to know I'm not going to pretend, <laughs> pretend that I have answers or pre- pretend that I know um, when I don't. So, yeah. and that's such an, it can be such an easy thing to fall into by accident. Cause you don't, you want people to feel like they're in good hands and exactly. I think the best hands are ones that are, are honest and true about our mm. limits. I agree you know? so much with that. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So getting more into the topic that we're going to talk about, yes. which is trauma. Yes. Um, it feels like for the most part, a lot of us today are unfamiliar with what trauma is and isn't. So in your opinion, yeah. how important is trauma education and awareness? I don't think you can undersell how important it is for people to better understand and know about trauma. There is, you know, sometimes you'll hear online this kind of like dismissal of like, well, everything's trauma now. And yeah, we go through, I mean, we all go through, you know, phases and kind of in any profession of what we focus on, but there's a reason that it feels like so much is trauma. There's just so much at a global level, um, at a community level, and then in our homes. And there's so much that gets normalized in our culture that is painful or traumatic um, that we, it makes people feel like they don't have a right to have big reactions to things or to feel certain ways about things that they've experienced. And you know, everything from debates about whether or not you spank a kid to gun control, all of that stuff is violence. Um, And then there's all of the violence that happens from what we can't see, uh, the things that you should get as a child that people don't, you know, neglect, not being seen or validated for who you are. Those are kind of traumas of omission, not getting things that you should have. And it hugely impacts our psyche and how we relate to ourselves and the world and each other. And um, I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate, who's a, a Hungarian-born Canadian physician who talks a lot about addiction and trauma. And he has a great book right now called The, the Myth of Normal. Uh, we're talking about all of these things that we've normalized in our society and our culture that are wildly not normal and traumatic and problematic. And so I think we need to talk about it. We need to raise awareness. It is, there's so much that we need to change. Um, so I think it's, should be top priority for, for folks. I think we should learn about it in school. I I didn't learn anything about mental health until I got into college we all needed way way more information (laughs) and help in high school and junior high and you know just 
all of it, I can't, I can't say how much, how important it is to me. I agree. I mean, I think that for the most part, a lot of us lived a life of what we were told was normal because our caregivers and those that had come before us had normalized dissociating from trauma because they didn't have the tools to really know what it was or, or how to deal with it. So when we were experiencing things that were uncomfortable or didn't feel good, we got their instructions on how to deal with it, which was just continuing the cycle of trauma not being processed. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole um, subgenre in psychology of uh, talking about kind of the intergenerational transmission of trauma and how we have studies now that they've done with um, children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and how their, um, their nervous systems are changed because of what the grandparents in the Holocaust went through. They're way more likely to develop PTSD. They have a lot more of like the stress hormones in their system. So it's, it's the modeling and normalizing of what, of what you do and what you talk about and what you don't. And it's how our nervous system gets wired in, in utero. Um, There's so many, you know, from the, from the cellular to the, you know, the cultural level ways that we transmit and normalize it, that we really need to unpack. Yeah. I think talking about it is, is a good start because, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to have certain conversations with certain people because some people just refuse to acknowledge that trauma is real. Right. But when you can come yeah. to them and say, okay, there's a study that shows that people who were Holocaust survivors, their grandchildren and great grandchildren have the same, you know, wiring as they do. You can't ignore that. That's real. I would hope you couldn't. <laughs> people still do. We are yeah. really good at denying what we don't want, don't want to accept, but it is absolutely real. And so is fortunately, so is the healing. I just, I do want to put that out there. The right. healing is absolutely real, but so is the trauma and mm. it's way too that widespread. Part. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, so traumatic experiences can cause us to become disconnected. What is dissociation and what can it look like? Okay. So <clears throat> this is another one of my, my areas, as you know, I love, I love educating about dissociation because it's something that is not really still not really accepted a lot in either society or some psychology circles. So dissociation is really what you just said about disconnection. It's disconnecting from yourself. It might be disconnecting from your emotions, disconnecting from your body. That happens a lot with trauma survivors of folks not really knowing when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, when they have to go to the bathroom, if they've been hurt. It's like, the, it's just kind of crazy what can happen with the the level of disconnect and so it might be memories too that you'll see that a lot um disconnect kind of it all gets hidden away by what we call a dissociative barrier so basically behind you know close that closet door on the feeling on the memory on the knowledge on something um and 
so yeah, that's dissociation kind of in a nutshell. Did I answer your question? I totally forgot. <laughs> I think so. Okay. Um, I, I love, I mean, that, that illustration that you gave about closing the, closet, closing the closet door, I think that goes back to, you know, what we've heard about having skeletons in the closet. It, it really gives more light to it because we've been saying that for years. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone ever really appropriated it properly as it could apply to trauma or not feeling yes. feelings. It was always yep. secrets, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You don't talk about it. It stays hidden. It stays shameful and it festers. And mm. it's, I mean, in, in the beginning, that process of disconnect helps people survive. It helps you survive situations that would feel too overwhelming, too hard to acknowledge. And so it's really, you know, it's not inherently bad. We all dissociate in certain situations and to some degree. And the problem is, is that when it's a chronic trauma that kids go through, it becomes a really powerful unconscious tool to take care of oneself. And then you're disconnecting from a ton of life and it's not even necessarily within your control anymore. And then it becomes problematic. Um, so it's not inherently bad, just like any other psychological process, but it it becomes a really, for some folks, really, unfortunately, a, a strong automatic response of their brain to protect them. Um, okay, so branching off of, of that question, what are some dissociative disorders? Okay, so the the biggie that most people have some knowledge of is called dissociative identity disorder. It used to be 20, 30 years ago at this point called multiple personality disorder. So it's basically when a person has different parts of self that feel really independent. So for me, I may have, you know, I have my my dog mom hat that I wear. I have my psychology hat that I wear. I have my wife hat that I wear, my daughter hat, but it's all me. I'm there for everything. I know it's just different kind of ways that I operate in the world, but for someone with dissociative identity disorder or DID or other forms of, of that, because there's different types, um, there's more of a sense of, it would be, you know, that that me that I am as a dog mom feels different and thinks that they're independent from the me I am as a daughter or a wife or a psychologist. They're, the barriers, those dissociative barriers between parts are a lot firmer. Um, so that's one. And I'm gonna get on my soapbox. It is not, it is not a fad. It is not made up. It's one of the first psychological um, disorders that got studied by Freud. Um, and it's not nearly, unfortunately, as uncommon as people like to believe. It has, um, it's actually, I don't remember the percentages because I can't hold on to numbers in my head, but it is, I believe it's as frequent as schizophrenia. And that's not something that people generally know. And schizophrenia is definitely not something we deny is a real life thing, but um, so that's, I could go on because there's unfortunately a lot of 
misinformation and kind of pushback in even psychological circles about it. But this is one of the, the areas that I study and that I'm pretty knowledgeable in and that I work with folks with this. Um, they are not at all what you see in the movies. Um, just FYI, because that's just, there's so much out there. But anyway, I digress. So that's the kind of the big category um, of dissociative disorders. And the other main one that happens is we call it depersonalization and derealization disorder. Now, these are things where people get a little disconnected and dissociated from either their own personal self or from the environment. So it might be they feel like they're looking at the world in a, through a curtain or a fog. Um, it might feel like their body or parts of their body don't feel real or suddenly the people around them feel strange. Now, those are all things that most of us have had brief moments of experiencing that doesn't rise to the level of a disorder. Um, we, not uncommon for us to experience it. Sometimes you'll experience it if you've been using certain drugs or medications or coming off of them. Um, sometimes it's really associated with anxiety when it gets super spiked, but it's when it becomes kind of more of a chronic, more often than not, um, experience that it rises to the level of a of a disorder. So those are the two main categories. There's dissociative amnesia, which is you know disconnect from from memories and kind of knowledge of self. And then there's dissociative fugue, which is kind of traveling and forgetting who you are for a little bit. But those are usually happen more in the course of other other things going on. Um, so that, that's kind of the dissociative disorders in a nutshell, I would say. Um, and they're not well understood. And so most therapists don't get trained in looking for those things or experiences or asking about them. Um, and it's not uncommon for me to be one of the first people to ask someone some of the questions that about kind of their experience. And then, and it's like, oh, that's, there's a name for there's a name for it. That's a thing. It can be really um, validating and kind of reduce anxiety to just be able to name it, that it's it's something that we can talk about it and try to help you work on reducing it or controlling it. But it can really make people feel like they're crazy um, when they don't know what's going on. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, I don't think it would be any different than having a physical ailment that you can't put a name to. And if you're yeah. seeing doctor after doctor after doctor and no one can tell you what it is, of course you feel crazy. Yeah. So it's no difference. Yeah. It, there shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's, and unfortunately, again, not to harp on it, there's a lot of misinformation and it's something that not necessarily all therapists even agree is a disorder or an experience. Um, and so unfortunately, people also run up against that. Not only are they feeling crazy, but then they have some providers who will just tell them that they are because that's not a thing, which is, gets me so aggravated. <laughs> um, how closely related is trauma to some of these disorders? Is trauma a big component? Yes. Um, it's really, it's as you can imagine, it's really hard to do research <laughs> and 
to be able to prove that. Um, but there is a big link for sure between trauma and dissociative, dissociative identity disorder. The What we think happens is that when you are an infant, your whole world relies on your caregivers, right? And if you, if your caregivers aren't attuned and don't meet your needs um, in a consistent, regular fashion, uh, the infant doesn't really have any other resources other than cutting themselves off from feelings and awareness of what's going on. So if a kid is hungry and hungry and hungry and crying and crying and crying, and they learned that that crying doesn't get them food, doesn't get them attention, doesn't get their needs responded to. They they don't have anything else other than like the, we call them endogenous opioids and cannabinoids in the brain. So the brain has its own opiates and cannab cannabis type chemicals. And so they just have to rely on that, which soothes, but also cuts you off and that's kind of what we think of how the nervous system learns to chronically dissociate. Um, and it's because needs are not getting met. Um, it doesn't have to be some horrible, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse to happen. And that's something else that I hear a lot. And I think it's important to know it's like, oh, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a bad childhood. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't beat. I wasn't raped. Like, I don't, these symptoms don't make sense because I had it so easy kind of vibe. And it's like, mm, 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 mm. it's, it is still traumatic. There is, you absolutely have a valid experience. You have a valid reason for having the symptoms that you do and having the struggles that you do. Um, so I think that's also an important piece um, to understand. I agree um, 100%. And, and something else that I'd like to add on top of that is when people, you know, say, well, I didn't have a bad childhood because these things didn't happen. And you're still suffering. And yes. your parents may not have intentionally done those things, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen or that you haven't experienced trauma because it doesn't look like what you're told trauma should look like. Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. One of the, one of the most important things I think we can teach people is this idea of both. And you could have had parents that loved you the way that they knew how and gave you what they could. And you still suffered and didn't get your needs met. Both of those things, unfortunately can happen. One doesn't cancel out the other. Um, and I, yeah, that's such a good such a good point. And I, we get, I get. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Thought I had that off. Yeah. The, I was going to say though, the thing that I hear now, I'm sure this will change in the future is, you know, oh, well, first world problems. And it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, you know, yes, we live in a first world. We have those problems, but two, you're suffering and you're hurting. And that doesn't negate the fact that you, have problems hmm. like you still deserve everyone deserves healing and and help um in my opinion so true 
I agree. Yeah. So one type of um, trauma that we can have from having our emotions neglected by our caregivers at a young age is attachment trauma. Yes. Um, so what is attachment trauma and how closely is it related to shame? Okay, good. That's a really good question. It's attachment trauma. It, it's kind of a, it's a big, it's a biggie. So attachment is that bond between infant and caregiver. It's where children learn to be, you know, seen, loved, nurtured. And it's also where they learn how to regulate their emotions. How do they, how do they manage that? And how are they reflected back in their parents' eyes? Um, and so if there is trauma there, if there's a disruption, if your parent, let's just say your parent has a chronic physical health issue, your mom, and she's often in the hospital when you are a child, that disrupts the bond. She's not around. It's not her fault. She's not trying to do something, but she's not around to bond with you. And if the father figure or the other parent figure is not tuned in, then the child does not have that, um, that other who helps them learn how to manage their emotions, how to love themselves, um, how to be in relationship to another, um, or that they inherently have value. Um, and unfortunately, typically what happens is if there's a disruption um, in the attachment bond, children almost always come to the conclusion that it's their fault. And it doesn't matter if you grow up and realize that's not true. Mom had an illness, she was out of the hospital, you know, she, it wasn't her fault. That doesn't change that felt reality of that little kid inside of you that feels like they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve love and that's why mom wasn't there. And that's a huge, that's a huge wound. And a lot of people, a lot of us carry those wounds around um, and don't kind of recognize that as trauma when it is. Um, mm. It's it's everything. It's where you're supposed to, you know, learn to be secure in yourself and relationships and how the world works. And if it's not working good enough, doesn't have to be perfect. Every parent messes up and misattunes at times. Like that's important too. It's about mm -hmm. chronic. If it's chron if they are chronically not seen, not responded to, cared for, it causes huge problems and huge attachment wounds. For sure. Um so something else that I want to talk about is perfectionism. And I wanted to to take a quick second to acknowledge the fact that my phone just rang <laughs> and you were worried about your dogs coming in and barking. And I said to you, who cares? You know, relatability is what I'm selling and you're human. You have dogs. If they bark, they bark. And I had every setting on my phone off and I don't know how that rang. And it literally made me feel like I was such a failure, but yeah. I know that's not true. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's I, my I professionistic part. And, <laughs> uh, and I hope you know that the only reason I'm laughing is because I totally, I feel your pain. <laughs> 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 that would, you know. Uh. 
because yeah. I wanted to recognize that. So. Yeah, um, I appreciate okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> My next question is, how are perfectionism, people-pleasing, and procrastination also related to trauma and shame? Yeah. So um, as I said, with when something goes wrong in attachment and in childhood, child almost always comes to the conclusion that they're you know, the one to blame, it's their fault, they're wrong, bad, unlovable, whatever it is, um, which is how we get shame, right? You feel like you are inherently, there's something wrong or bad about you. So shame develops and perfectionism and people pleasing is very much about trying to manage that feeling of shame. So People-pleasing is when, um, well, it's, a, it's another kind of big complex um, concept, but basically, you know, you're trying to keep the peace, trying to make sure the people that are around you are happy and calm, and you will tie yourself in knots to make that happen. People don't speak about their needs. Um, and then there's this kind of unspoken assumption that that will somehow make them both lovable and get their needs met, even though they're not actively working to do that um, because they feel so shameful about who they are. Their needs couldn't possibly matter. They have to do these things for other people because that's the only way they're ever going to, someone would ever dare to love them or, or find them valuable. Um, and then perfectionism Again, it kind of comes from that, that's how I'm going to get love is if I can just be perfect enough, and you'll hear this a lot, if, you know, if I do it just right this time, mom won't leave, dad won't drink, you know, grandpa won't do this, which is, of course, not true. Um, and also not possible. None of us can be perfect. And um so then that, in turn, often leads to procrastination because people want, there's, they want to be perfect in order to be loved, for example, but they know they're realistic that they can't be perfect or that it's such a huge task to try to be perfect that we often then end up avoiding even starting the task because we know it's impossible. And it's just this, which then, of course, leads to more shame. And it's this whole vicious cycle, um, all about trying to not be, not be imperfect and, and in order to be loved. And that's such an impossibility. We're all perfectly imperfect. Um, we can't, we can't be anything but, and especially in our society, I don't know, obviously about others because I haven't been raised there, but the, the, the pressure to be perfect and to achieve and to be just so and being on social media as any kind of professional, you, you feel like you have to do it just exactly so and you don't want to say quite the wrong thing. You don't want to be taken the wrong way. You don't want to put the wrong in front. It's just on and on and on and on. Um, so it's rampant, I would say, in our in our culture too. And the more we can just kind of try to accept that we are imperfect, flawed humans, the less anxious we'll be, the less pressure we'll put on ourselves, the more real we can be. And then that's how you connect, being real.
I think. The way you describe that cycle um, of knowing that you can't be perfect, but wanting to be, but then because you know you can't, you you hesitate, which then leads to procrastination. That is a vicious cycle, my God. It is. It is. And I I don't think we I don't think people quite understand how closely procrastination is tied, you know, and avoidance are tied to this felt need to be perfect because all people see is that stuff isn't getting done, but it's not getting done because you have this pressure to do exactly so. And yeah, I don't think most of us can escape some degree of that pressure that we put on ourselves. And then when you don't think, then when you don't get things done, you feel shameful. Mm -hmm. Which just, yeah, grows the cycle and grows the cycle. Right. right. Um, okay. So another question I wanted to ask based off something that I saw you had on your um, website or Instagram was a trauma line. Um, what is a trauma line? Yeah. Um, trauma time, I think. Trauma time. Sorry. Trauma yes. time. Yeah. Because no, we also have trauma timelines. So I was like, did I forget? Right. Okay. That's, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Again, <laughs> no need to be perfect. I appreciate that. Um, Yeah. So trauma time. So trauma time is this idea that when we go through trauma, again, whatever that trauma may look like, it, it, it can be really hard in the here and now to stay connected to the here and now. So it means you get stuck in trauma time. You feel as though you are in that time when the trauma happened. And so this Again, there's a lot of variability in it. So it might be you're reacting to the person in front of you emotionally as though they are your abuser or it all the way to something triggers you and you literally have a flashback and relive and are back in the there and the trauma time. So it's some degree of feeling as though you're still in the trauma, even though you're not remotely now. And yeah, I think that's another one where we, we focus on flashbacks and kind of that reliving. And I don't think enough is talked about how we can have much more subtle ways in which we react. And I, and often the shame comes from a very young place. And so that younger part of ourselves is reacting as though, you know, it's the parents or it's the abuser, it's whoever it is that, you know, is in front of them. And that's a lot more subtle and a lot harder to catch and name. Um, But I also think it's a lot more common than than people realize. Um, Mm. I definitely, I know (laughs) for me personally, uh, when when I'm getting triggered and into perfectionism stuff that I absolutely am connected to my teenage self. And I can, I, you know, cause I've done my work. I can, I see her, I feel her. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, this is all about that, that self-worth stuff that I felt as a teen so intensely. And then I can have a little bit more compassion for myself of, Oh man, that was so hard back then, but, but that's not me now. 
I'm an adult now and I have different skills and tools and in a very different place mentally and emotionally. And that can help kind of the more we can remember who we are now and get reminders for, from either the people in our environment or kind of from on your phone, if you have some reminders there or whatever it is, but reminding yourself that you are in the here and now um, is the best way to try to kind of cope with trauma time and a lot of the stuff that feels emotionally overwhelming. Is that easy to do? To be able to, <laughs> to in the moment, realize, okay, this is something from the past that is causing me to feel like this. Because I know you said you've done the work and I understand um, how it feels to be able to get to a place where you can be unimatched from the feeling. But I wanted to just kind of touch on that. It, how difficult is it to get to, to get to that point? Um, I, I'll give you the standard therapist reply of it depends because <laughs> it really does, but it, you know, it, it depends on a lot, but the more, the more you know, general awareness people have that this might be a thing, the easier it is. We first need to know that it's something that happens before we can ever name it. And Hopefully, if you're in therapy, your therapist is actively working on and talking about these things with you and helping you to learn to identify it for yourself in in the moments. Usually it starts with we identify it in like reviewing the last week and, oh, I was triggered there and I was triggered there. And then eventually get to a place where you're like, oh, I'm feeling triggered now. And then, oh, this is a place that I used to be triggered, would have been triggered. Um, so it takes work. Um, I won't say you have to be in therapy. I am slightly biased and think that it would be very helpful and useful. Um, but yeah, if you are having a, the biggest signpost is if you are having a big emotional reaction to something that doesn't feel like it correlates with what's actually happening, you know, does it feel like too much? Um, that might be a good a good red flag that you're getting triggered into past stuff. Something is happening from your, from your past um, is kind of at least the, the signpost I would start by kind of trying to follow and understand. Does that make sense? Okay. So it makes sense. It makes sense. I want to allow you to take your therapist hat off and I'll ask you this. How difficult was it for you? <sighs> um, I would say it was mild to moderate simply because um, I, I knew back in, in junior high and high school when I was struggling that I was, that I was struggling and that I needed help. And so I've always having that at least awareness that that was going on Um I've been working on it in some way, shape or form since then. So I, I feel like I've been more tuned in, but you know, I, I was in therapy back in high school. I, every, pretty much every therapist, when we go to grad school, we have to be in therapy. So I did that and I stuck around with it for a while um, longer because I was really getting some good benefit. And then I've done it a couple more times. <laughs> so each one of those has made it easier. Um, 
and just kind of different, different layers. But I would say hmm, only because I'm immersed in it and got into this because I wanted to better understand myself. Um, that it was mild to moderate, <laughs> um, but it, it, it takes work. It doesn't just, you know, I've, I've read a lot, I've gone to a lot of trainings, but there will be times where it's like, I'm talking to a client and I have an epiphany of, oh my gosh, this applies to me too. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I've, I've been doing, I've been doing this how long? And I just now figured out that this, <laughs> this applies to me too. Sometimes it just, you know, we, we don't get there until we get there. So it's an ever evolving unpacking. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, so something else that I saw was that emotions at times are referred to as messages. So if this is the case, how important is it to interpret the message accurately? Very important, I would say. However, I would say it's equally important to simply acknowledge and get curious about the message because definitely we have in our society have elevated thinking and logic and reason over emotions. And so we don't talk about them as much, the emotions, we don't understand them as well. And we often try to you know, suppress or minimize or put them behind that closet door and just forget. And if you don't have access to the messages that are coming in, you also don't have access to your full range of information and experiences and it cripples you. Um, and so we can, feelings are not facts, but they definitely give us information about what our experience is. And so I might get angry and that might be a message that I'm not okay with how I'm being treated. Someone's violated my boundaries. It also might mean that I have not properly taken care of myself. I didn't get any rest the night before. I didn't have my meal. And then I got, you know, irritated by someone doing something mildly irritated, but I get pissed. You know, same emotion. It might be very different messages, but we have to first acknowledge that it's there and that we're mad. And then when we can get curious, like take a minute, why, why am I pissed right now? Can I, you know, and then you might understand it's actually about the person violating your boundaries, or maybe it has nothing to do with them. Um, and again, it's going to, you know, it makes a big difference on why, why you're mad. And, but we first have to acknowledge it and get curious about it. That's the other big thing that I talk about with clients is just first and foremost, get curious. What's happening? Why is it happening? What, what can we understand? What does this teach us? Rather than jumping to, well, it means this or this kind of judgment comes up and can we just be with it and get curious for a little bit? I love that. And I love the fact that you said feelings aren't facts, because I remember I was told early on to only argue facts, not feelings. And it makes a huge difference when you look at things that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I just, yeah, I've had, I've had definitely 
family members who, you know, were just dismissive of my being a sensitive, emotional person. And I know that I am not alone in that. I hear that a lot, you know, just stop being so sensitive. You're being dramatic, you know, and it, that is, those are valid experiences. They're important. And why does one have to, there, we have to look at both. That's the most wise, balanced way of approaching things. If you go to one extreme or the other, you're, you're not looking, you're cutting off half of your experience and that's not healthy. So true. So true. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Okay. So we, we've talked about a lot, um, especially trauma and, um, the effects of trauma. And I think for people who may be listening, who want to start their journey or, you know, get to a, a healthy place internally, um, they, they may want to start therapy, but some may want to take, you know, some shortcuts. So I wanted to ask you, are there any shortcuts to healing in therapy or healing in general? I, I wish that there were, and I so understand this and we <laughs> all run into this in therapy and there's not. And we have this really common saying in trauma therapy and especially in dissociative work, you have to go slow to go fast. Because especially if you're working with trauma, if you don't go at a tolerable pace, you overwhelm the system and you might really kind of like collapse, have a relapse, need to go into the hospital, just become unfunctional if we're pushing too fast, too hard. And it's it's one of those, I got to hold both the fact that I absolutely understand you are in pain and you want the pain to stop. And we have to do it in a way that's going to be tolerable, that helps keep moving you forward without overwhelming. And so I wish that there was a shortcut. A lot of times people come to me for EMDR therapy because they kind of have this impression it will be a shortcut. And I think EMDR helps the process be more efficient, but it's still going to take the time that it's going to take. It The people that I work with, it's not just I had a great childhood and I had a car accident. And so I can do maybe eight to 12 sessions of EMDR and then I will be fine. If we're talking about chronic trauma, attachment trauma from a young age, the work is going to take time. The work to heal is going to take time. But this is a big but, but that doesn't mean you have to wait to be healed, to start feeling better. Therapy for sure should start helping you feel better soon, even if you're not healed for a long time, right? They are not the same thing. So I think that, I think that's important too, because it can be really disheartening to hear that it takes time and that there aren't shortcuts, but that doesn't mean that you have to just be miserable and in pain the whole time that you're healing. That was great advice. Great advice. Okay, so the last thing I want to ask is, is if if you could use your platform to encourage anyone who may be struggling 
um, with the idea of therapy or their big feelings or emotions, um, what would you say to them? Please consider it. Please don't give up. There is, there are so many of us out there with so many different ways of helping that please know you can find someone who will fit for you. And I know it sucks. This idea of trying to have to, what I encourage is interview therapists, find someone that feels that you feel like you can be comfortable enough with to do the work. Um, But that we believe the single most important thing in the, in therapy is that relationship. You need to feel seen and heard and respected and, and helped. And if the person you're working with isn't doing that, you have the right to change and you should so that you can fully, fully experience healing. And I know it's really, I, I know it's hard right now, especially with the, after the pandemic, so many of us are full. Um, but there are a lot of ways to get help out there. And even if you don't have access to resources, there are a lot of different kind of programs, um, and things like, um, I'm going to blank on the name of it for the moment. Given hour is a program that will give that therapist join offering one free hour of therapy a week for a year for folks who are military, retired military and their friends and family. Um, so there are programs out there if you can't afford it. Um, so don't, don't think that's the only way that you're going to get good therapy is if you can pay a lot of money. Um, it's not easy to find, but there's a lot of us out there that want, that want to help. And you, it just, I hate the idea that people sit um, in pain for longer than they need to. Um, so I would really encourage people to consider it. Um, ask your friends if they're in therapy, who they, who they've gone to, who they like, who felt good, like a good fit. Um, but please don't give up hope if the first one isn't right for you. Um, and please try to get into therapy. We, the only way we're going to save, save this, this culture and, and our, and, you know, our futures is if we do the healing and we help lift each other up. So please, please <laughs> get help. Cause it, it, yeah, that's, yeah, we, need myself. It. we do. That's my pitch. I appreciate that <laughs> so much. And also I think the, um, what was it called? Given hour. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. I, I, when I first got into my private practice, I did that. And I will tell you, I did not get a single request that entire first two years. And I don't know if it's just unawareness or if it's a little bit also of kind of the, the military culture. Um, I got out of private practice for a little bit and got back. And when I got back in, I I've had people, but you know, I was surprised there was this wonderful resource out there and I wasn't getting requests. So I know that there's resources um, that people might not be aware of. So start Googling, start talking to people. There's, there's stuff out there. You can find help. I'm, 
I'm a big believer in it. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, Colette, I want to thank you for your time and for your Absolutely. expertise and agreeing to do this with me. And also the fact that this was your first podcast. I know. <laughs> I hope I that I gave you a good experience. You absolutely did. You absolutely did. I so appreciate the chance to come on here and talk about the things that I am passionate about. And I so appreciate what you're trying to put out there and normalize. And I so appreciate it coming from you and your perspective. And I, I love what you've been doing. So I'm honored to be a part of this as my first. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. If people want to look you up online or on social media, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm on, primarily I'm on Instagram at trauma therapy SD for San Diego. So at trauma therapy SD, um, and you can find me there and please don't message me about therapy through Instagram. Go to my website. <laughs> <laughs> they don't keep your information private, but mm. reach out. Um, I'm, I'm also a big believer in if I can't help you or if I don't have space, I will, try to send you to the places that I think will be helpful, the the resources that I'm connected with and know of. So um, I you won't just reach out and find out I'm not available and then not get any offers of help because I don't think that's good good for our profession. So if I can't help you, I'll try to point you in the direction of someone who can. That's great. All right. Well, again, I want to thank you for your time, for who you are, for what you do and for how you do it. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it, Jalan. I appreciate being here today. Thank you.